Okay, y'all, open your Bibles to 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to look at 7, 12 through 8. A couple of weeks ago, our own bass guitarist extraordinaire, uh, Andrew Rasmussen, told me a story uh, about it. It's called an Eastern Orthodox parable, and it goes like this. There's a man who wanted to know how to love God, and so he heads up to a local monastery to look for some answers. And the abbot there agrees to help him along, and agrees to help him in his search. So the first thing he does, he takes the abbot to visit a monk who's living in a cell with stone floors, uh, only a rag to cover him at night, uh, who eats only uh, the crust of stale bread, who drinks only lukewarm water. And the abbot says, this man loves God because he hates the world. The man nods, and they move on to the next cell, and this is another monk, but in this monk, they are approaching the cell, and they hear a voice singing in the cell, (laughs) and they walk in, and they see that this cell is full of fruits and full of cakes, and the walls are covered in paint and bright colors and murals, Uh, and in his hand is this huge goblet of wine, and when he walks in, and they see him, he toasts his visitors, and the man asks, Father, how can this man be a monk? And the abbot replied, "Uh, this man loves God because he loves the world. Why is it that Christians, we, have a hard time doing joy? A hard time doing um, a deep love for the world. Why is it that we have that? I mean, Christians, you want to call us when times are hard. You want to call us when doctrine needs to be debated. But don't invite us to a party, because if you do, we're just going to give you a bunch of party rules. So why is it that joy is so hard for Christians? Why is joy so hard for us? Well, the answer is tucked in and packed in Ecclesiastes 11.7 through 12.8. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Ecclesiastes eleven seven. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, 
the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire falls because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. The word of the Lord. So, Lord, we ask you to shine on the page. We ask you to fill us with your spirit. Jesus, we thank you that you are king now and that you sent your spirit to your church at Pentecost. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, to come and to do for us which we cannot do for ourselves. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so long ago, um, there was an early and complicated church leader named Jerome. And in fact, he's been considered, according to the Dictionary of Historical Theology, uh, one of the greatest biblical scholars in the history of the church. Uh, his, this is what he says about our passage. Are you ready? On this text, there are almost as many opinions as there are people. Responding to Jerome, there's a guy named Sidney Gradanus, who is a preaching guru, a modern-day preaching guru today. Responding to that, he says, today there are more people, therefore there are more opinions than there were in Jerome's time. The point is, controversy in Ecclesiastes is no big deal to you and me now. I mean, I basically have said this for almost every passage so far, right? Every passage has been complicated. Every passage has been textured. Every passage has different, multiple layers of digging deep. In other words, when you get to Ecclesiastes, you can't take a rake. You can't just push the leaves on the surface of the text. You got to get a shovel and you got to dig down into the text to find the original meaning and find the ultimate canonical meaning, and it takes work. We can't be lazy when you come to Ecclesiastes, so we can't say things like, this book is, is just about being mastered by skepticism, where the message is a view of the world that says life is broken only, so despair always. I mean, get in your bunker. But neither is this book saying that it's all about positivism, where life is only beautiful, right? Live in Disney World. Always be happy. Always be smiling. Uh, Ecclesiastes is saying life is both at the same time. It is broken and beautiful at the same time. It's not an either-or, and if you go to an either-or, you, you run down interpretive directions that a lot of people do run down. And whole commentaries and scholars build their theology and their view of Ecclesiastes on one of those views. Ecclesiastes will not be mastered like that. Ecclesiastes refuses that. Ecclesiastes lives with the tension of beauty and brokenness all together at the same time. And so therefore, it is a book that is incredibly complex and a book that's incredibly nuanced and a book that by its form, it makes you slow down and listen. So it's a book about before church and after church. Chapter 5 was the turning point, and the key verb, the key command was, listen. So, this is the seventh installment of Enjoy Life sections in Ecclesiastes. All right? Uh, these sections, the enjoy life sections, drive the whole book. 
And as they move throughout the book, they increase in potency and they increase in emphasis. And by the time we get to this last one, it is the final, not only the final installment, it is the most developed of all the others because it's directly addressing the leader, the reader, you and me. It's introducing and dominates the whole final section of the book. It presents the preacher's thoughts, his final thoughts on how we should live life and why we should live it this way. So this last one is a big deal. It's almost like throughout the book he's been dropping breadcrumbs. And he's just seeing if you pick them up. It's almost like it's, you know, Hansel and Gretel. He's going to lead you to this, but this is a good guy doing this, right? And he's leading you to this final section of chapter 8. And so this final section of joy life. Now the structure is easy to follow even if the exact meaning is not. Are you with me? So let's look at the structure because it's going to help our meaning. There are two commands that drive everything. Rejoice in 11, 7 through 10. Remember in 12, 1 through 8. So the question you've got to ask yourself is what's the relationship between rejoice and remember? What is it? Well, rejoice is an invitation to your joy. This section, 11, 7 through 10, is inviting you to joy. 12, uh, 1 through 8, remember. It's telling you how to get it. Rejoice, an invitation to joy. Remember, this is how you get it. So that's the structure, okay? So let's, let's get started. Invitation to joy. Now, when we get to this invitation to joy, we're, we, we do have to smile a little bit. We do like, this is what this passage is about. You ready? All right, you find light and sun in verse 7. Do you see it? These are metaphors of life, so basically you could say this. Life is sweet, life is good. According to verse 7, life is embedded with a potency of sweetness. <laughs> life is embedded with a power of pleasantness or goodness. According to this passage, life is embedded with deep joy. The implications of this are absolutely huge. This means you and I don't bring joy into our life. It's already there. We're not responsible for our own joy. You and I don't produce joy. We don't create joy. We don't manufacture joy. We don't sustain joy. Joy is already here. We stumble across it. We discover it. It finds us. How can joy already be there? How can this be? Look at light and sun again in verse 7. You know what's fascinating? In Genesis 1, these are the first things that are created. Light's the first thing. The sun is the fourth thing. So Ecclesiastes is even getting the order in line here. Light before sun. Light um, before the sun. Now, I want you to think about that just a little bit, but we're not going to think too hard because we're not in, in Genesis. But think about this. God created light. Let there be light before he created the sun. This drives wooden literalism crazy. 
So maybe when we tackle, in fact, I did tackle Genesis 1 through 3. You might want to go, I don't know if they're on the website, but you can go look at how we present that and how we see that. There are like three views in the PCA that are acceptable. If you want to hear what ours or mine is, you can go there and look at it. But this is phenomenal. So how can joy already be there? The answer is because God put it there. Because joy is a gift from God. What God has done is he's put, he's put potent artifacts of himself in creation. God has embedded potent artifacts of his goodness, of his beauty, of his truth, of his joy in creation. Who he is, he packed into creation. Slivers of splendor. Pockets of potent joy are embedded in life because God made it this way. You don't find joy. Joy's already there because joy is a gift from God and he gave it to us in creation. So of course, life is sweet. And don't miss what's being the invitation here. The invitation is here to experience it. Life is sweet. That means you taste it. Jonathan Edwards has one, probably one of the most famous illustrations of all time where he talks about the knowledge of God being like honey, but he says, listen, I can, I can tell you the properties of honey, and I can diagnose doctrinally the realities of honey, and I can tell you even how it came to be, but unless you taste it, you don't know it's sweet. Its sweetness is an experiential reality, and that's what the passage is inviting us to. Not just, it's inviting you to joy, but it's inviting you to, to see that life is sweet, to taste it, experience it. That's why it says pleasant for the eyes. Do you see that in verse 7? Seeing, this is all. This is what beauty does to you. It's attractive. It, it grabs hold of you. You want it. God has embedded artifacts of himself and creation to such an extent that when you come across these artifacts, they're beautiful, they're good, they're true, you want them. And you should. Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 10 is an unrestrained invitation to joy. Verse 8, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Now, this invitation to joy is even amidst the madness of life, the fallen, wrecked world we live in. Verse 8, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. But that's not taking away from the invitation to joy. And not only that, look, this invitation goes beyond invitation. It goes to command. Verse 9, rejoice is a command. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer in the days of your youth. Now, everyone debates this, so I'm, I'm just going to say it's both because I think it's both. You could take it literally and say, yes, it's a literal young man, or you could take it metaphorically, which gets to the foundational realities of a person's life. So the meaning would go like this. Build your life. Center your life. The deepest magic of life is joy. Joy. 
How important is our joy to God? Well, in verse 9, judgment is based on it. What? I mean, when we think of judgment, we usually think of morality, and we usually think in terms of codes of righteousness, and we usually think in terms of laws broken. But in Ecclesiastes, you know what it's based on? What you and I do with joy. Old Testament scholar Seal says it this way, For him, the preacher, the enjoyment of life is both the lot of humanity and a gift of God. Human beings are supposed to enjoy life to the full because that is their divinely assigned portion, and God calls one into account for failure to enjoy. Wow. Who would have thought that? Who would have thought that what drives real Christianity is what you do with joy? Even the Talmud, which is an ancient Hebrew commentary, listen to what it says. Everyone must give an account before God of all good things one saw in life and did not enjoy them. Do you see the picture here? In Ecclesiastes, the picture of judgment is you're walking in a world of joy and delight, of embedded artifacts of who God is. And the question is, what did you do with it? And here's the question. Did you enjoy it? Were they sweet to you? Was it pleasing and pleasant to you? According to Ecclesiastes, the deepest magic of the human heart is joy. And God's after that in your life, and God wants you to flourish, and he's after you being packed with joy. God loves your enjoyment of the sunset and blue bonnets and catching a 20-inch rainbow trout on a fly rod and a glass of wine and sexual intimacy with your spouse and a good book, and a good story, and your favorite meal, and conversation with friends, and hanging out on the back porch with the people you love, or the love of your life, pushing yourself physically, athletically, artistically, mentally, skillfully, pushing yourself. God loves your enjoyment of your work and the creativity of your work and working together as a team with others in your work and helping others and being a gift for others in your work. God loves that. God loves our enjoyment of ordinary life, tucking your kids into bed at night, changing a diaper, reading the story over and over and over again, hitting Watching Cars and watching Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 over and over and over again. Playing Spider-Man and having magical tea parties and being this princess and that princess. And, and yes, even dressing up like one. God loves ordinary life. And he loves your enjoyment of ordinary life. G.K. Chesterton wrote, this is phenomenal. It's a little long, but hopefully we'll get the pack of it. 
Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in such fierce and spirit and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. So he's arguing children are fierce in spirit. They are free in spirit. And because they do, they love monotony. They love repetition. They don't get bored. It's sweet to them every single time. Read it again, Dad. Oh, please read it again, Dad. Can we watch it again, Dad? Can we go around the four-wheeler for 30 more minutes, Dad? Can we? They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. This whole text, when you get to 12, 1 through 8, it's the image of us getting old. The house is, is the human. But mixed in there is personal death, but also mixed in there is a, is a cosmic catastrophe of death. Getting old, according to Ecclesiastes and what G.K. Chesterton is saying, is not necessarily an age thing. It's a joy thing. Death is a death of joy in Ecclesiastes. So watch what happens. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun and every evening. Do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately but is never tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old. Our father is younger than we. That is phenomenal. Quote. G.K. Chesterton. Go look it up so you can have it in your notes. So how does Ecclesiastes say we experience joy like this? How do we do it? So the first section is an invitation to joy. Rejoice. The second one is how do you get it? And it's the other verb there, right? How do we deepen our joy? How do we walk away? How do you walk away from a joy killer? Something that's making you old. How do we do that? Well, the answer comes in Ecclesiastes 12.1 and Toy Story. Number three, to be exact, all right? You remember Andy's going off to college, right? Everybody's seen Toy Story 3? I sure hope you have. Even if you don't have kids or you don't have grandkids, you need to watch Toy Story 3. All right. The future of the toys is at stake in Toy Story 3. It's very uncertain. You have Woody, you have Buzz Lightyear, you have Jesse, you have Rex, you have Slinky Dog, you have Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, you have Bullseye the Horse, Ham the Piggy Bank, and you have Sarge and his two green army paratroopers, and you have three alien squeak toys, and you have a magic eight ball. That's all that's left because the numbers have dwindled from Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 because things happen to them. But this is all we got. This is the end of Andy's toys, and their future is uncertain. Will they be boxed? Will they be put in purgatory? which is another way of saying the attic? Are they going to be torn to pieces by some evil toy-breaking hellions in a daycare center called Sunny Day Daycare, which is led by a, uh, an evil strawberry-scented bear named Lotso and his evil accomplice, Big Baby? Or worst of all, will they be pushed to the curb as trash? Forever forgotten. 
forever unplayed with. Forever rejected, forever lost. What will it be? Now, I'm not going to spoil the movie for you, but I am going to say this. When all seems lost and all the toys are doubting Andy's love and his care for them, when all the toys mourn their loss of the past, the playtimes they had with Andy, and they look to their future and it's uncertain because he's going off to college, when all the toys struggle with their very identity because that's what they end up doing, and they struggle with their very meaning in life, and they struggle with joy in life. When that happens, in the midst of all of it, Woody pulls up his boot and they all gather around and they see it. And written on the bottom of his boot is Andy. Andy. Andy's name. They are Andy's toys. They belong to Andy. Andy is home. What he is saying to himself and to all the toys, he's saying, remember Andy, remember who, who you belong to. Remember who loves you and has always loved you, has always played with you. Remember your home. Remember who's written on you. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says it this way. Remember your creator. Uh, Wolterstorff writes of this passage. Remembrance involves consciously allowing the great acts of God to shape you. Do you see that? When you remember, you're remembering God and you're remembering specifically Creator. You're remembering the realities of who He is and the works that He's done. And when you do, they shape you. Another guy, Casey, writes, remembering is soul-making because he gets the same thing. When you remember and you start remembering God and remember His works, it starts soul-making you. It starts shaping your soul. It starts infusing you with home. In fact, one guy, Bartholomew, writes, uh, it takes you back to the primordial origin of all things, the creator, home. It allows the notion of God as creator to shape your view of life and how you handle life. Active remembering allows us to take our lives onwards and into new depths. It does this precisely by revivifying old depths. Taylor writes, it's a calling of radically decentering yourself in relation to God and call to a change of your identity that not only takes you away but also brings you back to flourishing. God's will is that humans flourish so that you're taking back to an affirmation of this flourishing. In other words, you're taking back to God, the one who flourishes you, who is flourishing, who's the origin and creator and the essence Joy. Remember your creator's returning home. It's returning home to love. It's returning home to who you belong to. It's returning home to whose name 
is written on you. And that's safety and that's meaning and that is the key to the puzzle of Ecclesiastes. God is home. And so amidst the uncertainties of life, 11.8, amidst a fallen, wrecked world, you're safe. Amidst oldness that's creeping into all of us the moment we're born, 12 verses 3 through 5, and even amidst, because in there, if you, read, if you read 2 through 7, you've got this stuff, you've got the house, the grinders are the teeth, the, the windows are the eyes, of, you know, it's all describing our falling apart. But then all of a sudden you have this, the moon and the sun are changing. It gets a little apocalyptic because infused in personal death is a cosmic death that's been there since the very beginning. And even amidst it all, you're home. Look at verse 7. And the dust returns as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who made it. This is creation in reverse. Remember in Genesis it was dust, God's breath, human being. Now it's human being missing God's breath, dust back to earth. It's going backwards. But did you see where the Spirit goes? And the Spirit returns home to God, to the Creator. Now, the details are left out here. So if you're trying to pack, oh, that was incredibly enticing. You die, and your spirit, your body goes to the dust, but your spirit goes back home to where you began way back even in Genesis. But the details, you're like, can, can you talk a little bit more about, where's the rest of the verse? But the details are filled in later by Jesus. When Jesus leaves heaven for earth, he looks at his hand. When Jesus is tempted by the evil one in the desert to forsake his rescue mission, he looks at his hand. As he righteously, perfectly keeps the law he looks at his hand. When the cosmic catastrophe of verse 3 or 2 and 6 in Ecclesiastes crush him, he looks at his hand. When the stone <laughs> rolls away, he looks at his hand. As the high king of heaven right now for you and me he looks at his hand what's on his hand you know what the bible says your name your name is written on his hand <laughs> 